Okay, so we're back for part two with David, and we left off with he had a great electronics business, grew, and then he looked like Rock Hudson, so wanted to become a movie star. Out west we go to California, I assume. So I, they, this is before the interstate highways. So I got my car loaded down. Oh, by the way, I was the only car that I ever loved. It was a 49 Merc, I had all customized. And uh, so it's loaded down, I'm heading across country. And I get to Paris, Texas, and I blew the engine. And you and probably didn't have the money to fix it. Well, when I left Miami, uh, I had $200. I was going to make the trip with $200. And I, or I had about $300, I guess. And I, I gave $200. I didn't want to carry a lot of money on me. So I gave $200 to my father, and he gave me a check for $200. So that when I would cash it when I got to California. <laughs> it was stupid. I didn't want to carry too, that was too much money to carry. I had enough money to pay for gas. Well, I break down in, in Paris, middle of the night, I, and I pull up in front of a junk, a, a junk car lot. And I slept in the car, and uh, uh, some friends had given me an old uh, moth-eaten jacket, um, and I had a long coat because uh, it was cold, going to be cold where I was going. And I had a cowboy hat and I hadn't shaved in three or four days. And so I pull in, fr in, and I pull in front of this car place. Next morning, they had a car of, of 1950 Plymouth Coupe, a little small car, and a, and the price was two hundred dollars. And so, I asked them if I told them I wanted to buy the car, and, but they wouldn't take my check. So, so I had to go to the local bank, and I, I got this moth-eaten wool coat, cowboy hat, no shave. You look like something off the most wanted poster. Like, they looked at me like I was there to rob the bank. It's like an old Western movie. <laughs> yeah. And they wouldn't cash the check. But so, but I, I uh, they, someone took me to Western Union and I was able to get my father to wire me Western Union $200. So I go back and I buy the car. Now I got the car loaded down with all my possessions that I'm not going to leave. So I took a chain and I chained the bumpers together. Now, I'm not talking about a towing bar and all. I'm talking about a chain connected to, the, to two bumpers. And I take off with this little light Plymouth pulling this loaded down, heavy mercury <laughs> convertible. And I, I'm gonna, and I have an uncle in Albuquerque, New Mexico, thousand miles away. And I'm gonna tow this car to Albuquerque, and I take off, and, I, and I'm going, and it was it was okay on a straight road, but when you went up a hill, 
Sometimes I didn't think I was going to make it up the hill with all the weight behind me. I'd have to put it in first gear and just barely make it up. And then when I came down the hill, the bumpers, the car behind me would hit the bumper and I'm, I'm going like this. And one time, this is crazy, one time I'm on the wrong side of the road. Most of the roads were like two-lane roads back then. And I'm on the wrong side of the road, out of control, and a police car had to swerve Achim. on the other side of the road to, to go past me. And I'm, to this day, I don't know why they, why they didn't come after me, but I guess they, they somewhere they had to be. Well, anyway, after three or four days, I made it to Albuquerque, pulling this car. And I mean, by all rights, I should, I should, have, I should have been killed. And whenever I, I made a turn, it was like the heavy car would, pu would push the, <laughs> the small car all the way. But I made it to Albuquerque. And my uncle had a, a portageon business. He used to build these portageons out of wood. Mm -hmm and take them on his trucks and take them to sites. They didn't have aluminum or fiberglass like they have today. And he had a fenced in yard. So I pulled my 49 Mercury into the yard and uh, I decided that I'm gonna overhaul the engine. And I never overhauled an engine in my life and it was freezing cold. And I would, I put it up on blocks and I would go run out there with a wrench and I would take a nut off of the crankcase and have to run in. He had a big pot-bellied stove and I'd run in, cool, you know, warm up and run back out, take another screw. And I took the entire engine apart down to, you know, just a block. Mm -hmm. And I went to the Ford dealer and I was able to buy pistons and rings and and uh, valves and all that. And I put it all back together. It took me weeks to do this. And, uh, and then I went to crank it up. Nothing happened. Would it turn over? Wouldn't turn over. So I called the Ford dealer and I said what I did. They said, well, when you put the parts in, you greased them all, right? Uh, well, I didn't know about that. I had to go back out and take everything apart again, grease it all up, put them back together. And when I cranked it up, it started, but it was missing and popping. And So, and so let me ask you, when I, when I was uh, a little boy, uh, 16, 17, I got a car, a 1971 Oldsmobile, and I blew the engine. And I decided to rebuild it myself because I had no money. And I took it apart and I got it all put back together and it wouldn't start. It would, it would sound like it wanted to start and it wouldn't start. So I towed it with a rope up to the local gas station. And I asked the mechanic, I said, what did I do wrong? He looks at it and he said, and then you had to adjust timing. <laughs> and my timing was off. And oh. They adjusted the timing on it and it ran perfectly. Well, you greased the parts when you put them in. I did. Yeah, I, yeah, I did. So, so then I got the guy from Ford to come over and all I, the only thing wrong, because I didn't know anything about timing, the only thing wrong, I had two spark plugs crossed, and he and he he fixed it, and the thing ran like a purred like a kitten. And so now I got a car running. I sold the 
Plymouth that brought that I told for $200 and I got my $200 back. And I, but of course I needed that to pay for the parts. And uh, I take off for California. I figure I wore my welcome <laughs> and uncle. And I'm 30 miles outside of Albuquerque and my car's overheating. And fortunately, I mean, it was like desert. Fortunately, there was a creek. Like 40, 50 feet down, there was a creek. So I, I have to put water in the radio. Oh, I have nothing to carry it in. I had a cardboard suitcase. And I emptied the suitcase and I, I climbed down this embankment. I filled the suitcase full of water and I dragged it back up the embankment. By the time I got to the top, half of it had leaked out. I put it in the car. Anyway, I finally got the car filled with water, took off again, and it started to overheat again. So I saw a closed up gas station and I pulled in and they had a, in the back, they had this big uh, 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 bucket with, where they used to take tires, you know, and stick them yeah, in there to yeah. see if they had a leak where the leak was. So I took their big uh, tub. I took this front seat of my car out or it was split seat. And I put the tub where the seat was and and every and every time I pulled in to get gas, I fill up the tub. So here, I, people would look at me, and I'm pulling the water hose into the car, filling up the tub. They thought my car ran on water. So, so you fill up with water and stopped every now and then and kept putting water. Every in it. thirty miles, all the way, I finally. And I mean, this was such a pain. Of course, I knew as soon as I it started to overheat, I didn't wait for it to you know blow in right. the geyser. And um, so I finally made it to San Bernardino, California, which is about 50 miles from LA. And it's like midnight and I'm exhausted. I haven't slept and I'm so tired. Every 30 miles I had to stop and fill up this car. And uh, I pull into a gas station, all night gas station and it had a mechanic. It's like midnight. I said, would you, I told him what was happening. I said, would you look at it? The guy says, oh, no problem, I'll fix it. He comes out with a torque wrench and, and he torqued, tightened the, head, the, the, the bolts head? on the head just with a torque wrench. I didn't know a torque wrench. So was water getting out of the head? Water was leaking. So he did that and never had a leak again. But uh, I wish I had known that <laughs> in Galbuquerque. And, but I was ignorant because I didn't know what I was doing. But then I drove to LA and, and uh, I had the car out there for, for two years. So, so now I arrive in LA with $10.50 in my pocket. I have no place to stay, don't know anybody, and I'm hungry. I found a rooming house for $10 a week. I gave him $10. I had a place to stay for a week and I took the 50 cents that I had left over and I bought a quart of milk and a pint of cottage cheese and that was my dinner. And I, I knew the next, when I went to bed, I knew the next day 
I was going to have to get a job in a restaurant because... Uh, you get paid immediately. You get tips and you get food. So the next day I went out and I found a, I found a restaurant, uh, a drive-in restaurant on Wilshire Boulevard. And uh, I get a job. I get a job there and I got fed. Well, it was a round building and, and there were all, all, all male car hops. And since this is for publication, I won't tell you any more about that. They were, <laughs> okay. all, they were all male car hops. And uh, they stuck me in the very back by the, by the dumpsters. And all these, it was near UCLA, and all the UCLA girls would come in, and when they saw that there was a straight guy working in the back, they all started coming to me. They would like wait in line, <laughs> whereas the rest of the stations weren't getting any business. So after a week, the uh, manager said, I'm sorry, but I gotta fire you, or else everybody's gonna quit. But I, by that time, I kind of enjoyed what I was doing, so I went to another drive-in at the corner of Westwood Boulevard in Wilshire, and it was like a Morton Steakhouse with a drive-in section. I mean, we served New York strip steaks and pecan pie mm -hmm. and shrimp cocktails, and I had all the movie stars coming in, uh, Ricardo Montalban and, and all, all these movie stars and actresses from Beverly Hills all came in. And uh, so I'm working there, and I started taking voice lessons and acting lessons, and I did a couple of screen, screen tests, and I got an agent, and he said, I need to get my portfolio made. I had to get my pictures done. Mm -hmm. so I found out who Rock Hudson's photographer was. He lived in the Hollywood Hills, and I, I went to him, made an appointment, went to him one night, and I said, he said, what do you need these pictures for? And I said, well, for my agent, I'm going to be a movie star. And he said, no, you're not. He said, you look too much like Rock Hudson. We already have a Rock Hudson. And he said, you'll never see two stars that look alike. He said, you want to be his, his double or his stand-in, but you'll never be a star. Well, I just popped my bubble. And so after that, I, um, I, I quit. And uh, I got a job as a TV repairman for a company. And I, the first day I went out and, uh, on a service call, and uh, the plug had fallen out of the yeah. wall. And I plug it in, the TV's working fine, and people thanked me very much. And, and uh, I went back, and the, the owner of the store said, well, what happened? And I said, well, it was just the plug had fallen out. I plugged it back in. It worked fine. He fired me because I was too honest. <laughs> you know, back in those days, you know, it was, yeah. TV was a racket. So I saw an ad in the paper for a, a, a lineman for Southern Cal Edison. So my claim to fame is that uh, I put in the first power lines in Malibu. There were some stilt houses in Malibu, but the, the, uh, the mountain across the road from the ocean right. was unde undeveloped, but there was no power. 
And I put in, I worked for Southern Cal Edison. I put in the first power lines in Malibu. And I, uh, I, I put my spikes on it and I'd climb up these poles. And I, I mean, now even that helped me later on. I'll tell you in a minute, but, uh, but after, I was not well liked because all the, my crew were married guys and they were, and I was the only single guy in the crew and, and they would come to work at their lunch pail and they'd have a bologna sandwich or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and all. And I'm, I'm single and I'm making fried chicken and, and pecan pie and I got, I got this gourmet lunch. So you're they, making money. Finally, finally uh, the, one of the company execs called me up or came by, actually came by and see me. He said, the guys on your crew would appreciate it if you wouldn't eat lunch with them. <laughs> and so I, uh, they were afraid to tell me themselves because afraid I might drop something on them. You know, I'm up 40 feet, 50 feet in the air. So anyway, but this, this was not going anywhere. So finally I decided to come back uh, to Florida. But I have this car out there and I'm not going to drive it back because after that mm -hmm. experience. So I live in, I, I live in, oh, I live in an apartment, 3940 in in Culver City, where MGM Studio is. I mean, I'm making good money. And I got a nice apartment, hot and cold running women all the time. And uh, a good friend of mine lived there too. He said, let's go get a beer. There's a little bar across the street. He said, let's go, let's go get a, get a beer. So I go with him. And he, he worked at Hughes Aircraft. And uh, he said, how would you like to meet Howard Hughes? And so uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, Howard Hughes was sitting at the bar. You would have thought he was a wino. <laughs> I mean, he wore, he was, I remember he wearing khaki pants tennis shoes, and I forgot the kind of shirt he's wearing. And then my friend takes me over and he says, Mr. Hughes, I work for you and I'd like you to meet my friend David Siegel. And uh, he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an electronic technician. You know, I said, Sounded good. I don't want to say I was a lineman, an electronic technician, and I'd like to go to work for your company. He said, well, okay. And he writes down the name of a woman. He said, you go see this woman and you tell her I sent you and that you will, uh, you'll, you'll uh, be at first in line because we got a lot of applicants. So I go, I go to Hughes Aircraft and I go there and the first question she says, have you had trigonometry? <laughs> I didn't even know what trigonometry was. <laughs> I said, no. She said, well, I'm sorry, but you're not. You're not qualified to be an electronic technician if you didn't have trigonometry. So that, that blew that off. Well, a friend of mine in Miami had a friend who was a doorman at a hotel in New York who had a friend who worked for Warner Brothers named a guy named Hugh Benson, worked for Warner Brothers, a vice president of advertising and public relations. And he said, if you're ever in California 
and you're looking for a job, go see Hugh Benson. So before I left the California, I decided I would go see Hugh Benson. So I go to, it's a two seats and a two story building. And right next to him is like the big arch where you drive in to the lot off the yeah. main street. So I go to the, there's a, a security guard downstairs and there's like a balcony on the second floor and the offices are up and there's a stairwell to go up along the left. So I go up to the desk and I said, I didn't have an appointment and I said, I'd like to see Hugh Benson. And he says, do you have an appointment? I said, no, well, Mr. Benson uh, won't, won't see anybody without an appointment. He was the big shots. So I said, well, will you call him up and tell him? Now, I didn't even know the guy in New York, but I knew his name. But I said, will you tell him that a friend of whatever the guy's name was, I can't even remember, is here to see him? Well, the card says, okay, but it won't help you or something like that. So he, he calls and he says, Mr. Benson, I got a David Siegel here, and he and he's a friend of whatever the guy in New York is, the doorman in New York. And I hear... I mean, because it was just like up his office off the balcony. I hear, well, send him right up. And he meets me halfway up the steps. And he, he's so happy to see me. And he and he's, how is Joe Blow doing? I know, oh, he's just doing great. He sends his regards and all. And on his door, it said vice president of, of, um, of uh, advertising and public relations. And so... I go in and he said, and how can I help you? And I said, well, I'm, I, I go to the University of Miami and I'm studying advertising and public relations and I thought I could get a job with you. And he said, well, we have a strict rule here at Warner Brothers that everybody has to start in the mail room. And then they get orientated and they meet all the different divisions and everything. And then they asked from the mail room, they can get a, appointed to, and they had one show, Maverick, back then. So I said, okay, that's okay with me. So he takes me to the personnel office and he says, I'd like uh, you to take an application from Mr. Siegel. And they said, the girl said, Mr. Benson, we have 10,000 applications. Apparently, everybody that went to California to get in the movies, everybody wanted to get in the movie, would go work for the studio so they would get discovered. You mm -hmm. know? And so he said, put his application in front. So I fill it out and they put it in front. And a few days later, I get a phone call. Uh, your app, you, you have been selected to come to work uh, for us. Now, I'm making $150 a week, which is a lot of money back in the 50s. Is that with being an electrician or uh, at uh, Warner Brothers? With, uh, no, uh, uh, $150 a week was that I was making uh, at the Southern Cal Edison as a lineman. As a lineman, okay. Uh, that was a lot of money back then. So they, they called me up and they said, can you come in Monday and start work? I, oh, yes, thank you so much. Oh, oh by the way... How much do you pay? And, I, and they said seventy dollars a week. <laughs> I said I can't afford to live. I, 
my expense, I had a nice apartment, I think, my, I can't afford it. Now, had I gone to work at Warner Brothers, I know I would have ended up as the chairman of the board of Time Warner, had I gone to work, taken that job. So there, there's a situation. I mean, I'm, I'm glad everything worked out, but there's, a, there's an opportunity that I, that I missed because I was worrying more about money. Money is not, is not. So, so I, I met, uh, I was in Chicago one time and I shared a cab uh, with this lady and uh, I'm there, uh, you know, it's snowing. And I said, where are you heading to? And this was off the outskirts of downtown Chicago. And she said, uh, Trump Tower. And I said, well, I'm going to Trump Tower too. I said, do you want to share a cab together? So we're in the cab. And, uh, and I said, so how long are you staying at Trump? And she says, well, I actually have a condo there. And here I make a chauvinistic statement. And I say, so what does your husband do? <laughs> and she said, it's not my husband, thank you. And uh, she said, it's me. I said, I'm sorry. I said, just stupid male comment. And uh, I said, what's your name? And, and her name was Miss Fields. She was the CEO of McDonald's. And, but she what's told her me, name? Uh, Miss Fields. I forgot her first Fields? name. Fields? Fields. But she started the counter of McDonald's. So just like you talked about the mailroom, she started the counter of McDonald's and worked her way up. And so, David, I think we're going to have to do a part three because we've already done 25 minutes and people don't want to listen more than 25. Because, but your story, I think people listen for two hours. I haven't even begun. You haven't even become a sheriff I'm yet. Not even, no, I'm not. And, yeah, wait, wait, how much well, longer? We're, we're going we're to come back to this, but how much longer do you become a sheriff? I mean, we're at, I'm only 21 years old. <laughs> we got 60 more I'm years to 60. go. And so, so, you know, tune in next time after this one because you're going to hear from David... Uh, obviously, he didn't take the job at Warner, where he probably would have been the CEO or chairman. Uh, but then he's going to become a sheriff, and, and we know he's uh, the timeshare king, the largest independent timeshare owner in the world. And, uh, you know, I want to talk to you next time about, you know, not only getting to that point, but the pit, some of the things, you know, I, I remember one of the hardest times of my life was 2008, and now that we're at COVID, it's like a repeat. I mean, it's almost exactly the same. Yeah. To that, this 2020 feels like 2009. It's a perfect storm. Yeah. We have COVID. We have the election. We have, you know, businesses shut down and all these different things. And so, you know. I, well, I, except uh, I was leveraged back then. I'm not leveraged now. So you're smart. That's the difference. But anyhow, join us for, you know, it's going to be part three. And I think there may be a part four. So <laughs> tune in. Five, uh, five or six. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.